Several years ago, we were doing some cooking for a Bible study that meets at our house on Wednesday nights. That was back in the days when you could actually have friends over at your house. Remember those those times? Anyway, Corey was cooking with oil, and I think it was pot stickers or something. And one of the utensils that she was going to use to turn those pot stickers had some water on it from being freshly washed. A few drops of that water hit the hot oil, and I'm sure you know what happened. Splattering hot oil went everywhere. And some of it hit this kind of grease trap up above in the hood, and it burst into flames. Everybody in the house was stunned, the danger was obvious, and somebody yelled, grab a fire extinguisher. The solution was obvious. We believed in the science behind the flame retardant chemical in the fire extinguisher. We theoretically trusted in its ability to suppress fires. We knew where it was, mounted just inside the door of the kitchen sink cabinet. It was literally four feet from the place it was needed. But in the time between the fire actually bursting out into flames and applying the benefit of the fire extinguisher, it, it felt like forever. Finally, somebody got up, got, grabbed the fire extinguisher, popped the top on it, and put the fire out instantly. Now, having graduated from firefighting school back when I was in the Coast Guard, I was reminded of what I should have already known. Fire extinguishers are important, but they're only as useful as those who know them, those who are familiar enough with them to benefit from that knowledge. So later that summer, we had fun burning things in our backyard uh, and having the kids practice using some real fire extinguishers. All right, well, today is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. The Apostle Paul and countless scholars and theologians after him will correctly say that Jesus, if he's not raised from the dead, then our hope is in vain. If there's no victory after death and no new creation, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, then you're on your own. Good luck. I'm sorry. I've got nothing else for you. Thankfully, there are many extremely sound reasons why we can trust in the resurrection of Jesus as an historical event. Over the years, some of my Easter sermons have even focused on the historical, theological, and rational reasons why we can trust that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And in fact, if that's a hang-up for you, I would love to hear your concerns and explore together the plausibility of Jesus' resurrection further. But for the next several minutes of this sermon, I'm going to focus somewhere else. Like my opening story with the fire extinguisher, trusting in the resurrection and trusting that it actually took place is only one step. It's like believing that fire extinguishers exist, that they work, even knowing where to find them. But the resurrection is more than a theory or a doctrine. And as we'll see, the resurrection of Jesus has direct implications for your life in this present moment, in our present context, and how it impacts our emotions and our thoughts today as much as in our future. Now, if you're a guest with us today, welcome. Our church has been walking through a sermon series rooted in John chapter 11 in the story of Lazarus uh, and Mary and Martha. Now, in that story, Jesus has these three very good friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus gets sick. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus because they believe that he can come and heal their ailing brother. Now, for some mysterious reason, Jesus delays, and Lazarus ends up dying. 
And eventually, in the story, Jesus calls Lazarus back to life after he had already been dead for four days. But the part of the story I'm going to focus on today happens in that strange in-between time. It's the in that darkness and grief between the death of Lazarus and before his resuscitation. Now I'll be reading John chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, the story of Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha is absolutely amazing. Through this narrative, we see deep emotions that we can totally relate with, intermixed with deep theological questions and observations. This story deals with grief, disappointment, anger, confusion, despair, community, faith, and the character of God. The story shows us the love and power of Jesus on the one hand, and on the other, his refusal to be put into a neat and tidy box of our limited understanding. In the part of the story I have read, I believe we're exposed to the limits of belief on the one hand, and the potential of what trusting in Jesus leads to on the other. So let's begin with belief. Jesus is nearly to Bethany. That's the town where Lazarus has died and where Mary and Martha were mourning. Martha hears that Jesus is close by, he's on his way, and so she comes out to meet him. She's got questions. She's angry, she's confused, and hers is the type of personality that keeps short accounts and just says things as she sees them. No hellos, no hugs, no formalities. Martha is bursting with emotion. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her statement carries a lot of weight. From that statement, we can discern that Martha had confidence in Jesus's ability to heal, that she had confidence that he would want to help had he been present. And she has confidence in her relationship with Jesus, confidence that she can speak openly about her feelings, even her anger, which is hard for us in the Pacific Northwest, and he won't abandon her. Martha even has confidence that Jesus could help and impact the situation even after the fact. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha believes that Jesus has a direct line to God. And Jesus meets her in her common ground of her beliefs. He says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Jesus has not yet said anything new. Ever since Daniel chapter 12, and even before Daniel in Isaiah, uh, the people of God, by and large, believed in the hope 
that God would one day raise the dead. That on a particular day in history, unknown to us, but is coming someday, on a day in history referred to as the end of the age, or the new creation, or the day of the Lord, among many other terms, on that day, God himself would come and dwell among humans. And it was believed that God would raise the dead and the, and the living and the dead together who were wicked, who were destructive toward others, who rejected the grace of God, they would be raised and then they would receive judgment. And in a similar way, those who were faithful and trusted in the justice and goodness of God, they would be raised and would be part of the new creation. And in this new creation, God himself would dwell with the people and he would be king and justice and peace would be the norm, no longer the exception in the world. And the curse of the fall of humanity would be undone forever. The promise of resurrection and new creation was the great hope of the Jewish people and all who came to be part of their family through faith in God over the years. Jesus is not yet saying anything new. He's reminding Martha of the future hope that Lazarus would be a part of. He would rise again. Death would not have the last word. God is faithful. And Martha replies, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha's theology is correct. She believes in the right doctrine, and we shouldn't discount that. There are a great many things in the world that are broken and so warped that I find great comfort in the reality that one day the world will be set right. And I have great hope that one day true peace for all people will be the default way of things. And I have great hope in the doctrine of new creation for uh, and new bodies that will no longer break down or, or get sick or betray us in the many ways that they do now. But in that moment, in her grief, merely believing in the resurrection and the age to come is a bit like believing in a fire extinguisher and its capability of putting out a fire while the house is burning down around you. Isn't that true for us as well? Yes, there's great hope in the future new creation, but is there nothing for us now? Is life merely just a sort of necessary passage in order to get to something better, in order to get like to the other side? I mean, if that's all that it is, then what a horrible joke, what a twisted experiment. But Jesus has more to say. Building now on the foundation of what was expected, the foundation of a future resurrection and a future new creation and a future in which God comes to dwell with his people, Jesus says to Martha, and he says to you and I, I am the resurrection and the life. Now keep in mind, this is before Jesus himself was even crucified or dead or resurrected or ascended. Jesus meets Martha in her grief and in her belief, and presents a new reality that changes everything. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's talk about life. If you were to read John's gospel from the beginning to the end, one thing I bet you would notice is that Jesus is all about life. He's the creator of life in chapter one. He's the life of the wedding party in chapter two. He's the one who came to give his life for the life of the world in chapter three. He's the bread of life in chapter 6. He came to grant abundant life in chapter 10. He's the way, the truth, and the life 
in chapter 14, and he breathes the breath of life into his followers in chapter 21. And in John's Gospel, there are two Greek words that are used to describe types of life. The first is the word bios. From that Greek word, we get terms like biology, the study of the living natural world. Bios life is such a gift. It's our beating hearts. It's our functioning lungs. It's our nervous system, endocrine, skeletal, muscular, cardiovascular, reproductive systems, all working in concert to sustain life and to pass it on. Bios life is a gift to every living thing. It is that which makes us not dead. And eventually, all bios life ends. All bios life eventually dies. The other word for life in John's Gospel is the word zoe. Now, zoe is not an inherent quality given to all living creatures. Zoe is the life of God, or sometimes described as eternal life. Zoe speaks more to a quality of life than it does to a network of biological systems or the mechanics of cellular respiration and reproduction. When Jesus is talking about life throughout the Gospel of John, he's talking to people. And if people are listening to Jesus or reading his words now, then they already have life, don't they? They have bios life. So the life that Jesus is so often talking about in the Gospel is the life that God makes available to us. It's Zoe life. Another way to get at the difference between bios and Zoe is to look at the negative, summed up by a quote from Benjamin Disraeli, who wrote, The great majority of men exist, but they do not live. We may have beating hearts and functional minds and bodies, some of you more than others, but haven't we all experienced that feeling of being like technically alive, but functionally dead on the inside? Haven't we all felt empty at times, listless, purpose, purposeless, or, or maybe realizing that the purpose for which we're living isn't something we're proud of or happy about? Sometimes we can get into such a rut of surviving rather than thriving that we can't really even imagine that life can be any different or any better. See, Zoe life isn't a false promise of health and popularity, wealth and comfort. Zoe life is a quality of living that's provided by God and which enables us to live lives of flourishing even when our circumstances are suboptimal. So the Apostle Paul and his friend Silas, they were filled with Zoe life when they were singing praises to God with great joy, all the while locked unjustly in a dark Roman prison. Zoe life is what motivates followers of Jesus to live as though what we do now matters for the future. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, it does matter for the future. So when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the Zoe. I am the source of abundant life, a quality of life that matters and makes a lasting difference no matter what your circumstances. He says, I am the resurrection. That's the salvation of your body. Even if you die, you will one day live because of my power, because of my love, because of my resurrection. 
because of your trust in me. And he says, I am the life. I am the Zoe. I am the source of a quality of life behind that of, beyond that of mere existence. I, I am the source of, of purpose and joy and gratitude and generosity. And that is profoundly good news. But there's more to tease out of this statement that Jesus makes to Martha. Listen again. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, students of Scripture may recognize that when Jesus says, I am, he's referring to God's self-revelation to Moses in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses as, I am who I am. And several times in John's gospel, Jesus alludes to himself as, I am, a clear statement on his identity. Somehow, in the person of Jesus, the God of the universe, who was promised to come and dwell with his people at the end of the age, has come to dwell with them for a time in the flesh during the first century AD. Now, as a profound a theological statement as that is, I want to point our attention to the personal nature of the good news of the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He does not say, a certain philosophy is the resurrection and the life. He does not say, a certain set of behaviors leads to the resurrection and the life. He does not say, this Christian denomination or that theological movement is the resurrection and the life. See, the resurrection and the life is not something you can buy with money or achieve through practice or gain access to by being part of the right group. The life is found in the person of Jesus. It reminds me of a story in John chapter 4 about the woman he meets at a well. Jesus met this lady who is living in deep shame about her questionable, questionable marital track record. As he meets her in that story, she's living with a man who's not her husband, and she's had five failed marriages, five failed relationships with men before that. It, it's, to say the least, a socially scandalous situation. Now, Having perceived that Jesus is a holy man and not wanting to get too personal, she starts to kind of talk theologically. Uh, she recognizes that, uh, you know, he's, he's, he knows some things about scripture and theology. And so she brings these questions up about God and worship. And you get the sense she's just trying to make sense of everything in her troubled life. And at one point, you can almost hear this sigh of defeat in her voice, this sigh of despair, as she says to Jesus, kind of as she realizes that it's all just too confusing for her, she says, I know Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, then he'll declare all things to us. Then he'll clear up the mud. Then he'll make heads or tails of it all. And Jesus said, I who speak to you, I am. All of a sudden, this woman who was resigned to a difficult life of hiding in the shadows of her shame, clinging to a future hope of a future Messiah, all of a sudden, her life is transformed. And she experiences God in the flesh, the I am in her midst. And she realizes that even in her sin and her shame, the God of the universe is not ashamed of her. He's not embarrassed. He's not, he's not saying unclean. In fact, 
the God in the flesh man is sharing space and love and intimacy and acceptance. He's sharing truth. He's sharing his life with her. And that kindness, that love of God, transforms this woman. And her bios life is transformed. It's replaced with Zoe life from Jesus. See, in the same way, Martha, who has all of her future hopes anchored in the correct doctrine of the resurrection, meets the resurrection and the life in person. And Jesus asks her, do you believe, in the Greek, do you trust? It's a question Jesus asks of all of us. Do you trust in the person of Jesus to grant you new life, not only in the future, but in the present? The resurrection and life of Jesus was never just about some distant day. It was about that distant day beginning to break in to our current mixed-up situation. And that is extremely good news. Would you pray with me? Risen and reigning Jesus on this Resurrection Sunday, we thank you. We thank you first for in fleshing yourself for coming, being God among us, showing us the, the best example of the character of God and the love and compassion of God and the power and holiness of God. And we thank you that in your resurrection, in your defeat of death, you've paved the way for us. Not just a distant future hope of one day being made new, as glorious as that is, but thank you that through even the smallest scrap of faith in you, you begin to fill us with a new life, with Zoe life, with a quality of life that makes life worth living. I pray for my sisters and brothers and I that you would fill us with your abundant Zoe life today. Amen.